we're going to start a new series today, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be with this for a couple of months, see how we get on with it. It's called What a Stunner. Uh, and the idea is that we're going to be looking at the gospel um, from a number of different angles. The gospel is, is one message, um, the good news of Jesus Christ, one message, but it's a bit like a diamond, multifaceted, and we're going to be exploring the wonders, the riches of the gospel together uh, in the, over the next uh, few Sundays together. Um, here's how it's going to work. Um, the general idea is that we're going to try and, t- through it, uh, teach you uh, about the, the grand narrative and narratives of the Bible, the whole Bible. So you could say that the whole Bible is about the gospel. Okay? The whole Bible is really about the good news of Jesus Christ, God's plan for salvation for us in Jesus. It's the whole book. And what we're going to be trying to do is just try and follow in the various threads that run right the way through. So each sermon, we're going to look at one particular theme, one gospel theme. Still with me? That gospel theme we're going to look at in four stages. Number one, creation and fall. Number two, Israel. Number three, Jesus. Number four, the new creation. So we're going to try and help you understand the historical narrative, the salvation history, um, grasp, if you like, uh, in, a, in a, the big picture and the meta-narrative of, of God's Word. That's how we're going to do it. Um, so each sermon will uh, look at those four stages. Just to say, there may be a particular sermon where you think, oh man, uh, it, would be so, it would have been so good for a friend, a neighbour, colleague of mine to be here to hear this because we've had conversations about this kind of thing and this way, this, this uh, view, this angle of the gospel really speaks into that. Well, we're going to, obviously, they're always recorded, so feel free to send your friends to, to download and listen to the recording. But also, we're going to prepare a Bible study for each sermon, um, whereby if your friends are interested, you can, you can, the resource will be on the We'll find a way of getting it on, online, and it'll be a resource that you can use to go through that particular message using the scriptures that we look at. Because of the way we're going to be doing it, obviously, we're not going to be sunk into one passage of scripture, but a lot. I hope it's not clunky. I don't know if it's going to be or not, to be honest with you. So we'll, we'll, you can just feel free to feedback. Um, I'm not that sensitive. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so please do. I mean, you know, I mean, also it's, it's a day of new things. I'm preaching from an iPad. So if I spend lots of time doing that and not saying much, don't worry. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll get a hang of it by next week. But we're going to see how this thing goes. So let's just pray and really ask for God's help and then um, trust, that, trust that we're on the right tracks. Uh, Father, we just want to say thank you so much that we have been brought into a story and that it's not just a, a, a number of facts that are sitting there, but that you're doing something. Thank you that we're born into history, Lord, but it's, it's this glorious uh, plan with a beginning and with an end. We thank you, Lord, that you have created um, the universe and the cosmos and time and space in such a way that it's linear, that there was a moment where you said that there'd be light. There was a moment where you created the heavens and the earth and then there'll be a moment where you say, behold, I make all things new. And um, we're right bang in the, in, in the middle of that. And uh, it's such a privilege. And it's so important Lord, that we really are gripped, not just that we grasp it ourselves, but that we are gripped by it. We get it. And so I do pray for a real help today. Help for me, help for all, all the people that are just listening, just that it will be a Holy Spirit time. It'll be a time of life, a time of clarity and, and, and inspiration. So, Lord, we rely, on, we rely on you and we look to you and we just say, Holy Spirit, we believe in you and your ability to help us see things that we haven't seen before. So come and bring revelation, I pray. 
Amen. Amen. Okay, today's, um, today's title is called A Tale of Two Cities. That's, that's, that's the gospel angle we're going to look at today. A Tale of Two Cities. Biblically, a city is not so much about the amount of people that live somewhere. Uh, uh, probably an accurate uh, definition of what is meant by a city in the Bible is that it's a social form in which people live in close proximity to one another. So a lot of the cities that are spoken about in the Bible, when you get into the detail of population, you think, is that a city? 350 people. Particularly some of the really early cities, you think, hold on a minute. No, when the Bible talks about a city, it's more talking about proximity than it is size, just to help you understand that. Okay, we're going to start at creation. We're going to start and look at crea- the creation and the fall and how that whole thing, what, what we begin to see there. Because obviously we're going to be doing narratives, like many narratives and stories, it's not till near the end that things start to come together. So if there's loose ends on the journey, don't panic. We'll get to the end today and hopefully it will come together. If it doesn't come together, you can slap me around. Okay, turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis if you have a Bible with you. If not, uh, you could, we're going to put them up on the, um, on the thing here, but it's often good to follow it in your own Bible. That way you just get used to what's where and uh, thumbing through. It's just a good thing to be growing familiarity with your Bible. Here's what we see. Uh, the, the, the first... The first uh, people made in the image of God, Adam and Eve, that are recorded in the early book of Genesis, we find that God placed them not in a city, but in a park. God placed them in a paradise park. That's what the word, you know, we talk about the Garden of Eden. Really, we're talking about a paradise park. That's what it was, a place of repose and a place of wonderful rest. And uh, it's described to you in Genesis 2, verse 8 to 9, the Lord God planted a garden or a park in Eden. So Eden was a place... And there was a garden that was placed there. Okay? Eden wasn't a garden. There was a place called Eden. And God planted a garden there in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Shortly after that, later on we know that he then formed the woman from the man and they were in it together. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Really important. We'll come back to that later. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's what we've got. We've got a park. We've got a paradise. We've got a garden. If any of you here live with a sense of paradise lost, there's a reason for that. It's not just mind games. It's what we were created for. So we have this wonderful idea, this wonderful park, this wonderful garden. This is what we have um, here. Um, And then when we look at chapter 3, after they've fallen, they've disobeyed God, there's only one prohibition. There was a very liberal situation. God said, do whatever you like. Eat from any fruit of the tree. Just have a great time cultivate is a responsibility but it was it was very permissive god's natural posture is permissive not restrictive really important a lot of people assume god's natural posture is restrictive try and stop you doing stuff because that's the way satan paints god because satan comes and says did god really say you can't eat from any trees trying to paint god in that way so that's a real satanic lie very permissive but there's just one tree don't eat from that one they ate from that one uh uh and everything terrible that you see and read in the newspaper and that you've experienced in your life can all be traced back to that event there. Part of God's uh, judgment on them was this, chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're banished. 
They're banished from this place of paradise. They're banished from this place of rest and repose and joy and life to the full. They're banished, thrown out because of their sin. That is part of God's judgment on them. Very important. Hold that one in your mind as well, please. And then the first city that we read about in detail is the city of Babel. We find that shortly after the flood, there's a scattering out from where Noah and his family came out from the flood. There's a scattering, and certain people decide, we don't really want to scatter, we want to do something instead. And we read about that in chapter 11 of Genesis, verses 1 to 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city... There it is. And a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Next slide. Please. And the Lord came down. See the city and the tower which the children of men have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So our first encounter with the city is negative. It's about pride. That seems to be the main thing. Going, let's, let's make a name for ourselves. And so God judges that. It also seems that the, another reason possibly why God judges it is because it's a false security. God has said to Noah and his descendants, go and fill and multiply. And actually they've said, rather than so, we, so that we're not scattered, let's hold together for security. And so there's a sense at that point where there was a real uh, movement from the Lord, which was meant to be a scattering. And he said they gather and try and find security within themselves. That could be another reason, a bit more subtle, but there it is. But actually, when we read it, it's negative. It's a, it's a story of judgment. It's a story of God not being happy with what they were doing. Now, I just want to suggest at this point that if, if all we've got so far is this wonderful garden that they're then banished out of, and then a city, and man, look at that. Oh, God really judges that. We can come into a mentality of thinking, biblically, cities are bad, fields are good. Yeah? Cities, green stuff, godly. That, yeah, that can begin to get into our mind and it can also create an expression of Christianity that kind of uh, flees the city. Get out to the countryside so it can be godly. Uh, also an understanding of heaven that's kind of like the, the afterlife. I'm going to run in, I'm going to run some meadows. I'm going to be in meadows, you know, with music, music and meadows. And so that can begin to get into our psyche perhaps. Well, hold that thought. Keep telling you to hold your thoughts, don't I? But, um, okay, so, creation and fall. We've done creation and fall. Now we're going to go to Israel. We're deliberately choosing the four main portions so you develop an understanding and a grasp of, these, of the whole story of the Bible. The Old Testament is primarily the story of Israel. Now, the people of Israel started off nomadic. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were nomadic people wandering around, setting up tents and monuments and pillars and places of worship here and there, sleeping, and heads on stones for pillows. It was a nomadic situation. Then, as a result of famine and Joseph and that whole story there, the people of Israel, the extended family, 70 or so members, not yet a nation, just a big family, they make their way down to Egypt and they settle there for 400 years, during which time they become slaves, they become oppressed, God raises up Moses, brings them out. At that point, I think around, talking around 3 million, brings them out of 
uh, Egypt. They spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Then God takes them into the promised land. Um, so there's still a people that really haven't really known what it is to settle in their own land. There's this wonderful promised land um, for them. And, uh, and then as time goes on, they conquer various cities and other things like that. But the city's not a big deal. And then along comes David. He uh, attacks, conquers a city called Jerusalem, which previously belonged to a tribe called the Jebusites. He overtakes it, and suddenly something massive changes in the way uh, this particular city is spoken about. We read in 2 Samuel 5 of the conquest of Jerusalem, and it, and it gets expanded. 2 Samuel 6, we read about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark was a box, and in it, certain things that were very, very uh, spiritually significant for the for the people of God, for the Israelites, and it really represented the presence of God. And previously, it lived in a tent where people would go and the priests would offer sacrifices and very uh, kind of a wonderful, beautiful, yet slightly complicated worship. But the, the, the box was like the presence, you know. So David uh, orchestrates the priests bringing the box into Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is not just the political capital, it now becomes the spiritual capital. And then we hear this, this word called Zion, begins to be introduced more and more. I'm sure you've heard the word Zion. And um, Zion is one of the hills of Jerusalem, um, which later on Solomon builds the temple on Mount Zion. And, uh, and the temple becomes a much more permanent structure for the presence of God. And it's suddenly a very, very significant thing in the life of the people of Israel. I'll just read to you Psalm 48 here, uh, the first three verses, just so you can get a sense, really, of how they thought of the city of God, which started to be called Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. These were the language they started to use. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What language? His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Incredible. You find this kind of language time and time again throughout the Psalms, Psalm 46, throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Suddenly, something's happened around this city. You see, God is very interested in it. And it's spoken in very exalted terms. You think, wow, this is very, very significant. And yet, the people of Israel don't understand, grasp, trust in the name of their God. They don't understand and grasp the privilege of who they are. What they, what they tend to do is look to the other nations around them and look at the kind of so-called gods they worship, with all the vile stuff. It included sexual immorality, sacrificing children with some really terrible things. And what they started to do was they started to syncretize their worship of the Lord with these other, kind, other forms of religion. They would bring these things together and try and make it work. They would create sort of statues of animals and say, it's the Lord, and other things like that. And they would try and bring together their history with, this, with, with the God of heaven and earth with this other statue-making, bowing-down kind of idolatry and try to say, we can do this, we can do this. Time and time again, God warns them, don't do this. You do this, I will, I will expel you. The land itself will, will vomit you out. You, you mustn't do this. And the prophets come and they warn, the prophets warn, and the Israelites resist the warnings and they go headlong, generation after generation, into this kind of situation of refusing to be God's holy people but constantly trying to just bring it and draw it all together and make something that they think will work. There comes a point, 586 BC, where Jerusalem is 
finally, well, in a sec, <laughs> I guess not finally, it's there today, but in terms of the glory, the temple, and all of that, it is sacked. And it's sacked by Babel, or the Babylonians. It's quite ironic. God raises up these people who have no regard for him and brings them as a disciplining tool on his people. And it is ruthless what they do. And the people of God are exiled, they're thrown out of the land, the city is reduced to absolute rubble. Remember when we did a series on Nehemiah when he rebuilds the city? That's a result of what the Babylonians did. It's terrible. And it's described in this way, 2 Chronicles 3, 17 to 21. No, sorry, 2 Chronicles 36, 17 to 21. And the people... Sorry. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, all these wonders from the temple, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The land itself got a rest from the people of God. The land itself went, phew, those guys are gone. From God's people. It's terrible. What a horrific thing. So this is the history of the city of God through Israel's time. It, it, uh, enter Jesus. At the point of Jesus' entry into the story, Jerusalem by this point had endured centuries of oppression and domination by Babylonians, Persians, Greeks and Romans, interspersed with a number of very violent Jewish revolts. But here comes now the promised Messiah, the King. Right? This is Jerusalem's moment. This is the moment that Jerusalem was made for. Even the wonderful kings of David and Solomon, they were really just foreshadowings of the great king prophesied by Isaiah of, his, of, his, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. He's called the root of David in his divinity because he was the source of the anointing and the glory and the life of David. He's called the branch of David in his humanity because he was, uh, Jesus was related to David and, in, on, along the natural line. He's the root and the offspring, the root and the branch of David. Here he comes and he comes to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's response Crucify him. This is, this is her moment. This is the moment her king has come. Sure, every now and then it looks good. He rides in on a donkey and they're all crying out, Hosanna. But, you know, a few days later they're crying out, Crucify And they will not be shut up and they will not be silenced. This is the city of God. And then the rejection is made final by the fact that he's crucified outside the city. Totally rejected. Hebrews 13 makes reference to that, how just he did reproach of just, just rejected, cast out the king, the creator, the Messiah. How does Jesus respond to Jerusalem's response to him? In two ways. 
Firstly, he weeps and laments. Matthew 23, this is Jesus' response. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And then in Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus, only two accounts of Jesus weeping. Only two accounts. The tomb of Lazarus and he, he wept over the city city of God. Such potential. Saying, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. AD 70, the Romans do it. So Jesus weeps and he laments and yet he doesn't despair. He says other things too that make you think, oh, hold on a minute. You seem to almost have the sense that you knew this was going to happen and that something's still moving. It's not all going wrong. There's a very famous verse. I'm sure we all know that those of us that have been around church for any number of months or years Matthew 16, 18, and it says this, I tell you, you are Peter, he's talking to Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now hold on a minute, because we think church, right, we just go into church, you're thinking. Stop. The word is ecclesia in the Greek, and it's a two-sided word, and it means people that have been called out and called together. So it's it's a term for those called out and an assembly. What's the biblical definition of a city? A group of people that live in very close proximity to one another. This talk here of gates that's, and, and enemies, that is city talk. That's, that's city talk. That is, that's what's going on there. In those days, one of the things that a city would most normally would have, it would, be, it would be a walled place and have gates. And the gates are the big deal. If the enemy possesses your gates, you're done for. So Jesus is saying, fundamentally, I will build my city and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then you look at Jerusalem, you think, but it's all gone wrong. And Jesus said, no, I will build my city. I will build my city. And it's not this. It's not Jerusalem. It's not that there won't be people from Jerusalem in it, but the city of God is not Jerusalem. The city of God is not over. No one can thwart the ultimate purposes of God. Which takes us on to the new creation. Now we've got a lot. Of, we've got a fair, a fair few, some text here from the Bible. Quite a bit of it. Please follow this because this is when it's all going to start coming together now. In the new creation, what we begin to see is well. Let's read. We go from Revelation 17. So Revelation, the Apostle John, he's having this incredible spiritual encounter where he's given these amazing visions from Jesus. And there's angels and things, it's all happened. He says this, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, actually I will, I'll read it directly from here so that I'm not turning my back to you the whole time. Um, when we become a post church, we'll have some sort of screen with things there that tally up to that and we'll know that we've arrived at that point. Okay, <laughs> so 17, 
Here we go. Then one of, so we're going to read the first six verses, then we're going to read verse 18, then we're going to read the first ten verses of chapter 18. Okay? So, then one of the seven angels who were the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those of, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and he had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, Babel, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18, first 10 verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Strong stuff. What we realise through this passage now is that there is a whole city deal going on that is in the spiritual realm. It's, this is not talking about earthly Babylon. This is a demonic power that m- manifests as... Uh, it takes on, if you like, how can I describe it? It's actually hard to find the language because it's very, it's very mysterious, but it's very important. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a spiritual power and spiritual manifestation that is represented in the spirit as a city, represented as a, as a, as a, as a, as a coming together, but the coming together is against God. The coming together is rooted in the worship of pleasure, the worship of sinful pleasure. It's, it's, in, the, uh, it's in the worship of self. It's, in the, it's in particularly around um, greed and sexual immorality. These are the things that mark uh, the, the city in terms of ungodliness. This, this, this spirit of Babel, this spirit of Babylon. 
we sit, we sit back in Genesis, let's make a name for ourselves. Pride, let's exalt ourselves in whichever way we can by accumulating things, by, um, by displaying all that we have to whoever will look. It's that whole thing again. We, whatever, by whatever means, we will exalt ourselves. We will, we will become objects of worship and we will worship others that are just like us. And it's the same spirit. You didn't see it in Revelation. You realise this thing is global. This thing is not located in one location. This is not about geography. This is, this, is, um, this is one of, I guess, Satan's main tools in terms of bringing influence on the world. It's this spirit of Babel, this city that has dominions over the kings of the earth. Very, very powerful, evil spirit. So we realise that this city is not... So the, the, these cities we're looking at, oh, you suddenly you're, you're, you're blown out of just your kind of local, parochial, natural view when you realise this is not about Jerusalem. This is not about Babylon. This is about spiritual reality. You think, oh my goodness. What, what, this is huge. This is very, very huge. And we've got to... We've got to this is big. <laughs> Even the language, the scope, the scale, when you read it, it just has a sobering effect, doesn't it? You realise, oh, okay, so even the, the rapid and violent advance of sexual, you know, I mean, just the paedophilia and the things and the, the porn, I was trying to think of the word, I had to make up a word in the other, the pornographization of our society or whatever, but where pornography just becomes just, it, it's everywhere. It's just, it's just everywhere and 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 you know you you walk into you just you know you walk into Sainsbury's and you with your kids and you go to the newspaper rack and you're like whoa steer them away and you know the, the whole thing because it's just what is this is this it's not just i mean it's 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 it's, it's the heart it's the sinfulness of people but driving it and fueling it is demonic spirit it's powerful We've got to wake up to it. You can't beat it by willpower. You can't just beat it by just, I don't know, you know, oh, we'll, we'll get through. Well, let's think positively. This, it's way beyond that. This is spiritual reality. It's the city that we do not want to be a part of. And we're not talking about London. Spiritually speaking. Now we're going to just go to... Revelation 21, and I'll show you a different city, and then we're going to pull the, thing to, the whole thing together. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, and then we're going to do verses 22 to 26, then we're going to do the first four verses of chapter 22. Here we go, 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. It's the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city's got no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there, and they'll bring into it the glory and honour of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Chapter 22 now, the first four verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flying from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Ah, hold on a minute. Ding. Heard about that before today. With its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. A night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. Woo! I know what city I want to be a part of. Now listen, it's Eden restored, but the parks become a city. It's Eden restored. The face of God is seen, as the face of God used to be seen by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The curse is reversed. There's nothing accursed there. The gates are open. Instead of this vanishing and then this flaming sword to keep you out, now the gates are open. There's the tree of life. Ah, but it's no longer a garden. It's no longer a park. It is a city. This is the new Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion. Now, here's how this deal works. This is where you really got to, this is like red pill, or the red pill or the blue pill moment. You know, it's like, oh man, okay, try and track me on this, okay? The city of God, the new Jerusalem or Zion, call it what you will, is being prepared by God in heaven and being prepared by God on earth. There is a mysterious correlation with the building of the church on earth and the building of this wonderful city in heaven. That's why in the Bible it talks about our good deeds. If we serve the Lord out of a place of faith and love and hope and really give ourselves to him, then the Bible says that at the day of judgment when our works are tested, if it's come out of faith and hope and love and you spin it out of worship for him, then, then the fires of judgment will only show forth the wonder of what that work was. And it's all kinds of gold, silver and precious stones. Well, if I'd, re- if I'd read it, but it was just too much, I didn't want to be. If I'd read about this new city, it's Jerusalem, its walls and its foundations, and everything, it's all made of exactly the same precious stones. And somehow the good works, the things we do as we serve Jesus, serve and love one another, build ourselves up in love, every time we do that and live out that new city life, live out that new city culture, what happens is in the heavenly realm, another brick goes into the wall. And so this is what I said, his bride has made herself ready. What is the bride's coming down, but we're the bride and we're down? What is this? The bride is making herself ready. The church itself is, is growing as she lives more and more like she is part of the city of God, not part of Babylon. This wonderful correlation between heaven and earth comes together. It's been in God's heart from eternity, hence a return to Eden. It's not some new idea. It's not, when, God put, when God put Adam and Eve in Eden, he said, cultivate it. He wasn't just saying trim the plants and build a city. And we thought they failed and they did, but he hasn't failed and he won't fail and he's doing this thing. And we are, we are, guaranteed, we are guaranteed, it's not like, oh, I want, will, it, will it come good? It, of course it will come good. How do we know? Because of Jesus' victory. It's all rooted in the victory of Christ from the moment of his, of his incredible, his perfect life, his atoning death, his death, defeat and resurrection and his ascension, we know that God wins. We know that this is going to happen. And yet the part we play in it is very, very meaningful. So I'm going to end now on application. A few things to say by way of application. You guys still here? Okay. Number one, God loves cities. So you're in the right place. 
<laughs> now you may not if you've got to call you to move on fine right okay yeah, yeah, yeah. don't come and moan at me afterwards right fine all right but god loves cities the world is becoming increasingly urbanized i think it's something like by 2020 i think or maybe it's a bit later than that it's probably a bit later than that but they're projecting the world will be 70 percent urban cities are not going away cities are not going away so it's an exciting thing cities are in the heart of god and um, we must engage with our city in the spirit of the new Jerusalem. Yeah, you see it? It's all. It's, it's not just engaged in the spirit of the new Jerusalem. Where we, where we hate the spirit of Babylon. But we love where God's put us. You see the sharpness of that? This is, this is, this is cosmic scale stuff. It's big stuff. You've got to get it in your heart. That's what we're talking about. That's what God is doing. Okay? We are to pray for the blessing and work for the good of this city. When the Israelites were exiled into Babylon, into that terrible place, God says, pray for the city and work for its good. Okay? Don't say, oh, oh, don't like this. No, you pray for it and you work for its good. Yeah? Not because we somehow believe. If we do enough, it will just become perfect. We know, this, we know how it's going to go. But we're called to be salt and light. We're called to represent Jesus. And we're called to see his kingdom advance as much as it is his will in this age. Second application, warfare is more intense in the city. Okay? And the reason why is that there's more people in the city, therefore there's more battles, because the epicenter of the battle is in and for human souls. The heart of the battle is in the human soul, and the heart of God's and Satan's battle is for the human soul. People made in the image of God, that is where the big battle is about. And there's more people in the city, so the battle is, there's just a whole lot more battling going on. It's more intense. Let me say, if God has called you to the city, he will make you strong. He will make you strong. He will make you robust. His grace is enough. Okay? Don't flee to try and get away from the, the battle, the intensity. This mistake, yeah? In the list of God's armor in Ephesians 6, there's nothing to protect your back. So never run away. Important. You're not as safe as you think you are. The city, that warfare is more intense in the city because there's a cultural flow that goes from the city out to the suburbs and the rural place. So you, you, you get a city, you get a nation. Especially if, it's a, especially if it's capital. And if we engage for the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, if we look to bless this city, if we look to demonstrate the life to the full that is in Christ, in this city if we, if, we, if we look to use our talents for the glory of God for the building of his church for the blessing of the city we can believe for godly influence to flow out to the nation it's incredible it's a real privilege and the potential that we have here so our, our, no, we don't, we, it's not just about us many many churches in London but let's play our part let's play our part third I need to ask this question where is your allegiance you need to nail it you need to nail it. Where is your allegiance? It's either Babel or it's the New Jerusalem. There's no third city to choose. Don't bow the knee to Jesus. Then your allegiance, by by the very nature of that, is towards Babel. And no matter how much you protest you're not into this gross sin or that vile thing, you don't love the king. That's the point. Your allegiance is centred in the question, do you love King Jesus? That's where it is. And that's what I'm asking you. Where is your allegiance? Do you love King Jesus? Because he loves you. And he loves you enough to lay down his life for you. But he's absolutely calling you to bow the knee. 
Absolutely. He is worth so much more than your complete life. Okay? To even engage with, is he worth it? He is worth everything of everything that's been created and more. Okay? Really important. Where is your allegiance? We must also realise, those of us that will call ourselves believers, that we cannot Christianise Babylon. The city of God is populated one way only. It's by people moving decisively and clearly from the allegiance to one to the other. That's how this thing works. You mustn't get into some sort of naive idea of we can, we can make it better. People need to get saved. People need to be converted and brought out of that and into that. That is how it works. One soul at a time. That's how this thing works. That's, why the, that's where the battle really rages, in the heart, mind, and soul of people. And praise God, we've got such a message. Hope, forgiveness, reconciliation, new life, eternal blessing. Wow, we are power-packed with this thing. And then finally, I want to say this, those of us again that are believers, final application, much discernment is needed for those who claim to be citizens of Zion increasingly we will need to be very clear about the fact that we love righteousness and we hate wickedness. We must do so in a way that is not self-righteous, that is not as if we think we're on the moral high ground, or anything like that. That is hor- it's a horrible kind of nasty kind of Pharisaic spirit. Not like that at all. But holiness is key. One of the most powerful weapons we have in helping people change allegiance and actually come into a relationship with God is by living a new Jerusalem life in this age. By his power as much as we can, and when we get it wrong, humbly saying sorry, and saying, forgive me, I, I, I didn't represent Jesus there. Well. Living that out. And we need to just feel the cosmic weight of this thing, not in a way that will crush us. Jesus said, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. It's not a way that will crush us, but in a way that makes us go, and I know you come in from a, a meeting like this, you come in from work and distractions and all the things that go on and suddenly, bang, you're hit with this. I understand. It's a bit of a sledgehammer. But let, let, let God carry you somewhere glorious through it rather than just saying, ah, you have a part to play. He will lead you into your part to play. He will give you grace for it and you'll enjoy it. Okay? Not this, always easy, but there is joy in finding your place in the purposes of God.